Hello, dear listeners, and happy Halloween season. We are always the most excited here at American Hysteria when October rolls around. And if you've been listening for a while, you know that we like to bring you Halloween specials. And this year is no different, but we need a little bit more time to flesh that out. Pun definitely intended, and you'll understand why soon. So we are giving you this re-release of our episode from last year called Haunted Dolls. And it is definitely one of my favorites. And it was one that was incredibly fun to make. So I hope that you will either listen for the first time or enjoy this classic rerun. But I did want to let you know what's coming up this month. Our Halloween special will be on the topic of the 12-foot skeleton craze. Not only are we going to cover kind of the rise of the 12-foot skeleton and why it caused the sensation that it did, but we're also going to look at the history of skeletons in America, more specifically the displaying of skeletons in America, both fake and real. So next week, we'll give you a context clues episode to give you all the context you need to get the full picture for our Halloween special. And then, of course, you'll get our episode on the 12-foot skeleton. But after that, we also have another Halloween special in which we are teaming up with Sarah Marshall of You're Wrong About to really bring Halloween home. So we hope this sounds exciting to you, and we hope that you're already celebrating the way that we are. Happy Halloween season, and please enjoy this Rewind episode called Haunted Dolls. On this podcast, we explore fantastical thinking, moral panics, conspiracy theories, and urban legends, examine the forces that shape our culture, and tell the stories that create the realities we share, and sometimes the realities we don't. I'm your ghost, Chelsea Weber-Smith, and this is American Hysteria. Yes, it is. That, that's the Annabelle doll. Um, Haiti, land of the voodoo. Daddy, Kathy, oh, Daddy, Kathy. Abracadabra, I sit on his knee. Presto, change and now he is me. <laughs> it was early summer 2014 in San Clemente, California, when eight families contacted the local police, each having discovered a mysterious porcelain doll left on their porch. Far worse than that was the fact that each doll just so happened to resemble a little girl living in each of the houses. Coming upon this scene, straight out of a Pretty Little Liars episode, the children and parents were freaked out, and soon the story went viral, with local news stations all over the state covering the drama as it played out in real time. 
interviewing the mothers of the eight girls who found the special, sinister surprise. We're very unsettled and obviously taking this very seriously as it concerns, you know, our daughters and little girls. It's kind of, it's just odd. It seems very odd. I'm actually thinking the worst, like a someone creepy watching our children. Here again are two pictures of the dolls released by the Orange As usual, the explanation turned out to be nothing short of cozy. There was no sensational, sensitive, possibly satanic, serial killer in a low black baseball cap selecting dolls one by one from the dusty shelves of an antique mall to psych out his prey. It was just a local kindly old lady who was cleaning out her closet full of dolls and decided to handpick a lookalike gift for all the little girls at her church. But the far more entertaining story of the creepy dolls far eclipsed the story of a local act of kindness. And regardless of the revealed intention, you know the media still believed something nefarious could be afoot. Okay, so police spent a few days investigating if the dolls were a prank or from a sexual predator. But overnight, we uh, learned that the person who left those dolls was trying to be nice, supposedly, (laughs) and no charges were filed. However, Pete, I question that because then this person must have been watching these families to know what the kids look like. Dolls in some form have been a part of most all cultures in all periods of time. They've been a tool of play, a way for young children to learn the customs and roles they will be expected to perform when they come of age. But beyond play, they have often been used as parts of religious rites by adults, imbued with supernatural powers of protection, otherworldly communication, and sometimes revenge. They've been companions to billions of children throughout world history and into the present day, where the market for dolls still reaches into the billions of dollars annually, second only to sports stuff in the American toy market. But there's also an alternative online economy that deals in dolls enchanted by restless spirits, paranormal activity all but promised to be included in the package. For this episode, we'll see how these ancient ritualistic items have been filtered through American popular culture, the modern demonic folklore that has swirled around them, and the many mechanisms that have allowed them to speak on their own. Most importantly, we'll see what these haunted dolls have to say about the humans who enchant them. Let's talk and talk and talk. Go bye-bye. For millennia, children provided the voices for their dolls, controlling exactly what they say. But in the late 19th century, eccentric inventor Thomas Edison introduced Americans to a doll able to speak for itself. 
In 1888, Edison announced his intention to create the first mass-produced talking doll, leading to newspaper headlines like, The wonderful toys which Mr. Edison is making for nice little girls. He had just astounded the nation with the phonograph, an invention that the public felt was paranormal in and of itself, able to capture sound for the first time in world history. Edison believed that this invention had infinite potential and decided that toys could be a perfect way to test out new technological advancements. So he fired up the New Jersey factory, pumping out hundreds of dolls with porcelain heads and poseable limbs that stood two feet tall and weighed a heavy four pounds. The reason for the heft was that each doll's torso contained a tin chamber, and inside that was a little tiny phonograph with a unique wax recording that would emit from a horn embedded in the chest. When the crank attached to the doll's back was turned, it would play 12 different 20-second nursery rhymes like Jack and Jill or Hickory Dickory Dock or Mary Had a Little Lamb. As is classic Thomas Edison, he first thought he could just do the doll voice himself. Mary had a little lamb, it screeched with white as snow, and everywhere that Mary went, the lamb was sure to go. One critic, who was given an early tour of the factory, remarked, quote, The deep, gruff voice of a man reciting Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star had a rather gruesome effect when issuing from the lips of a rosy-cheeked little dolly. Another journalist made a similar observation, quote, Mr. Edison wound up a sweet little creature, and in a hoarse, husky, deep tone, the doll growled out these words. Oh dear mama, your little dolly is tired now. Put me in my little bed, dear mama. Eventually admitting vocal defeat, Edison hired around a dozen young women who worked for pennies a day to become what some consider the first American recording artists. Each was given their own cubicle where they would mimic the best they could a childlike singing voice. Since there was no way yet to mass-produce phonograph records, the women actually had to record a separate version of each song for every single doll. As many have pointed out, Edison was anything but a shrewd businessman, and as such, the audacious rollout of his talking dolls was a bit hasty. The models were not quite shelf-ready. Within the first week, the complaints flooded in. The mini phonographs were breaking easily, the little cranks were getting lost under couches, and the wax records were crumbling apart. Those who were actually able to keep the dolls shit together long enough to have some focused playtime were met with shrill, maniacal incantations hissing out from what felt like the great beyond. 
let's listen to some of the frightening 1888 recordings digitized for the first time by the Thomas Edison National Historical Park in 2015. The press lambasted the creations, complaining of the, quote, flat, uninflected whine of our earliest recording artists, with one Washington Post headline reading, dolls that talk, they would be more entertaining if you could understand what they say. The already too expensive Edison dolls bombed spectacularly as news got around quickly of the shoddy craftsmanship and the nightmarish choruses. Edison would stop production of his talking dolls within a month of their launch. By the end of this whole disaster, Edison agreed with his critics. He hated the creepy things, called them unpleasant, and referred to them as little monsters. In 1896, Edison was ready to be through with these dolls for good, stripping out their little phonographs and then selling the bodies off to buyers, burying hundreds, if not thousands, of his tiny sound machines and their hellish recordings on the grounds of his laboratory. It would take another 60 years for anyone to truly perfect the talking doll. And of course, within just three years of that, this new technology became the subject of popular horror entertainment. Talkie Tina, a doll that does everything. A lifelike creation of plastic and springs and painted smile. To Eric Streeter, she is the most unwelcome addition to his household. But without her, he'd never enter the Twilight Zone. On November 1st, 1963, The Twilight Zone aired what might be my favorite episode, called The Living Doll, which starts with a little girl named Christy receiving a mass-produced talkie Tina as a gift from her mother. The doll says several different phrases, things like, My name is Taki Tina, and I love you very much. But after taunting Taki Tina, Christie's super mean and awful stepfather finds the doll saying strange things to him when no one else is around, things certainly not sanctioned by the manufacturer. My name is Taki Tina, and I don't think I like you, and my name is Taki Tina, and I think I could even hate you. 
He later tries to destroy the doll in a vise, with a blowtorch, and with a buzzsaw, all to no avail. And then, at the end, Talkie Tina mysteriously appears on the stairs, causing Eric to fall, presumably to his death. Let's talk and talk and talk. Nice, Mommy. This is Mattel's family of chatty dolls. Chatty Kathy, Chatty Baby, Tiny Chatty Baby and Tiny Chatty Brother, and this is Mattel's Charmin Chatty. Talky Tina was clearly based on one of the most popular toys of the 1960s, Chatty Cathy, who said 11 cute phrases when her string was pulled, performed by legendary voice actor June Foray, most famous for her roles as Rocky the Flying Squirrel and the original Cindy Lou Who. When the producers of The Twilight Zone got a hold of her to ask if she would be the voice for their haunted ripoff of Chatty Cathy, she jumped at the opportunity. So when Americans heard the voice of this murderous doll from The Twilight Zone, they were actually hearing one identical to the Chatty Cathy's that had been delighting children and annoying parents as a bestseller for the last three years. The episode became so iconic that it would serve as a major inspiration for screenwriter Don Mancini's 1988 horror movie Child's Play, in which his villain, mass-produced good guy doll Chucky, is possessed by the spirit of a dead serial killer who entered it through a satanic ritual during a toy store police shootout. But, as we'll see, this relationship between dolls and the demonic had been around long before the Reagan-era satanic panic made us all suspicious of the playthings we once adored. More after this. You ever notice how finding time and energy to do the most basic human necessity, eat literal food, has become just another exhausting task jammed into our increasingly inhuman schedules? Well, your spring can be a little more stress-free with Factor. Factor will provide you with delicious, never-frozen, ready-to-eat, gourmet meals that are chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. Each week, you get to choose from a menu of 35 options to create your perfect breakfast, lunch, or dinner with absolutely no prepping, cooking, or cleaning up. And Factor makes sure you get exactly what you want. You can tailor deliveries to your schedule and customize how many meals you want each and every week, and you can pause anytime. So just head to factormeals.com slash American Hysteria 50 and use code American 
American Hysteria 50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That's code American Hysteria 50 at factormeals.com slash American Hysteria 50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Check out Factor today. The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. And now, back to the show. From Haiti, land of the voodoo, comes the most infamous cult of all. I see death. Master of the undead dance. Wander into any novelty shop in the French Quarter of New Orleans, and you're sure to be surrounded by cheap, mass-produced, ritualistic revenge dolls, complete with pins to stick through their bodies after casting a spell upon your worst enemy of the moment. Mad at your boss? Stab him in the thigh. Terrible mother-in-law? Heart attack. Your philandering ex? dealer's choice. These dolls offer their owners a kitschy curse, a strangely acceptable antisocial behavior done in apparent jest. The archetype of the voodoo doll comes out of the sensationalized, Americanized cartoon version of voodoo, a set of beliefs and practices that enslaved people brought from Haiti, which then blended with similar African traditions as well as Roman Catholicism. Those who practiced different variations of this religion laid down roots in Louisiana, but voodoo was far more widespread and acceptable when the state was under French control. Before the Louisiana Purchase of 1803, slavery was less rampant, laws governing what black people could and could not do were far less rigid, and racial mixing far more common. The Catholics and Protestants who poured into Louisiana after the purchase started working on converting the population completely, using the age-old template of the Satanic Panic to paint black voodoo practitioners as demon-possessed, barbaric, human-sacrificing, blood-drinking, orgy-obsessed, savage hex-casters, catering to a religion of pure evil. In fact, Vodou was so widely hated during the Civil War that the Union Army occupied the whole city of New Orleans in an attempt to stamp out the tradition completely. At the same time that the moving picture industry was exploding in the 1910s, 20s, and 30s, the United States military was occupying Haiti, and movies about a strange, primitive, but potentially powerful magic, one certain to have satanic roots, served as a prime justification for the interests of the United States government. 
A couple decades later, a short-lived 1950s craze for exotic cultures struck America, and thousands of cashew nut dolls were imported from Haiti. They were made out of cashew shells and used jequirity beans for eyes, which turned out to be a big problem because jequirity beans contain toxins much like what is found in poison ivy, and when swallowed by a baby or toddler, could result in serious illness and death. When the U.S. Public Health Service dropped their official warning about the dangers presented by these mass-produced folk toys from Haiti, they used the term lethal to refer to the dolls, which were not, by the way, related in any way to voodoo dolls. But the connection was easily made in the minds of many Americans nonetheless. It's true that, like in almost all cultures, dolls have been, and still are, a part of voodoo religious practice. But rather than twisted revenge poppets, they've been used to communicate with the spirits of ancestors and the dearly departed, left in graveyards or hanging from trees, with the hope that a loved spirit might inhabit them for a little while. And while there is nothing scary about the practice, nothing sinister about these dolls, that's not the lasting impression that Americans took away. And voodoo remains a creepy and tired plot device in horror stories and modern folktales, taking the blame for our most dangerous hauntings into the present day. Everyone, say hello to Robert. Hello, Robert. If you haven't heard of Robert the Doll, I'm sorry, because he is super cursed and you were better off before listening to this last sentence. After visiting the toy where he's kept behind glass in a Key West museum, some visitors to Robert have lost jobs, some have had marriages end, and others have gotten into car wrecks or sudden accidents and incurred serious injuries. Designed to look like a three-foot-tall boy, his face is soft and stitched with only the slightest of defined features, small black eyes, the suggestion of a nose, its fabric pocked with small dark holes. When the doll was given to a little Florida fancy boy named Robert Otto in the early 1900s, he immediately named the doll after himself and dressed him in one of his own little sailor suits. Human Robert doted on Robert the doll, turning the attic into his room and giving him toys of his own. In addition to treating him like an absolute queen, human Robert also treated him like he was absolutely real, his parents actually overhearing full conversations between two distinct voices in his room. At first, they assumed that it was just human Robert talking for Robert the doll, nothing to worry about, just a little bit of child's play. But soon, Robert began blaming every accident, mistake, and mishap on doll Robert, 
including mysteriously upturned furniture and silverware thrown across the room, which everyone wrongly assumed had come from the Florida Fancy Boys' budding fits of rage. The doll remained a constant companion to human Robert until his death in the 1970s, after which his wife Anne could not leave that toy behind fast enough. Robert fell into the care of a woman who kept him for the next 20 years in her home, where guests allegedly experienced paranormal occurrences like mysterious laughter and footsteps, and noticed Robert changing places and positions with no explanation, sometimes just straight up vanishing for days on end. Finally, in the 1990s, he was eventually donated to the East Martello Museum in Key West, Florida, where he remains a popular tourist attraction today. But do we really think a glass case can stop a curse? Get real! Almost right away, those who experienced accidents or misfortunes following their visit started blaming it all on Robert the Doll, just like human Robert had once done. It's believed that because of all that blame he took for his whole existence, he now has certain rules that must be followed, some honestly great new boundaries. All right, my darlings, before we go in to meet Robert, it is very important that we understand his three rules. Number one, upon meeting Robert, kindly introduce yourself. Number two, ask permission for his photo. And number three, out of respect, say thank you to Robert. All right, my darlings, come on in. He's only been waiting 114 years to meet you. Robert has become a feared figure, almost religious in nature, receiving thousands of apologies from handwritten letters, sometimes along with boxes of sweets, daily emails, and social media comments, all of which appear truly contrite, genuinely afraid that he might be the true source of their suffering. If Robert is indeed enchanted by a malevolent spirit, we have to ask what inspired this sinister possession to begin with. Well, legend has it that the doll was given as a means of revenge by an angry servant, one who enchanted the doll using voodoo magic, creating a curse in retaliation against a family who had mistreated her for years. But Robert's story never quite reached the mainstream, unlike his cooler, more popular, and meaner cousin, who, despite her success, still shared the same demonic DNA. Everything and anything in here we have investigated. Don't ever touch anything, and if you do, let me know. This is the worst thing in here that doll. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna stare at it though. So you, you can take the picture, but I'm not gonna stare at it because that is that has done badly, bad harm on a lot of people. You have to conjure the spirits in order to get it. You know, you're not gonna get it by just walking around here. And that's the one that's sort of depicted a little bit in this movie, correct? Yes it is. Yeah. That that's the Annabelle doll. Yes. 
demon-hunting power couple, Ed and Lorraine Warren, were paranormal Catholic rock stars in the 1970s, made famous by their work with the victims of the Amneville haunting. Founders of the New England Society for Psychic Research, Ed was an ordained priest and a published demonologist, and Lorraine was a biblically sanctioned spiritual medium. Like a right-wing Mulder and Scully, they paranormal investigated their way across a haunted America, more than 10,000 cases by their approximation, and they eventually collected an entire museum's worth of possessed objects, around which they claimed to offer a kind of righteous force field. The real Annabelle looks nothing like her design in the 2014 box office horror hit based on her life. No cracked paint or deep-socketed, wide-eyelashed eyes, no unhinged half-smile. She's actually a very unscary Raggedy Ann doll who, according to the Warrens, was gifted to a young woman named Donna by her mother on her 28th birthday and sat in a place of honor in the apartment she shared with her roommate, featured dead center on their main couch. As they are wont to do, the doll soon began moving around the apartment with no apparent explanation. And not only that, but the women began to find disturbing communications, scribbled words like help me, written on old parchment paper, which appeared out of thin air. When a friend of theirs made a joke out of the allegedly haunted doll, the Warrens said he was woken up that very night experiencing a severe choking sensation and discovered in the morning a row of bloody claw marks across his chest. Eventually, the roommates were freaked out enough to get in touch with a psychic who told the women that the spirit of a seven-year-old girl named Annabelle Higgins was trapped inside the doll. The child's body had apparently been found years before, their apartment building constructed on that very spot. What this Raggedy Ann needed was love and care, the psychic said. She was sad and lonely and meant no harm. This was a great relief to the women, but when love did not prevail and the strange occurrences continued, the women were ready to bring out the big guns. After a pretty raucous walkthrough of the doll-cursed abode, the Warrens let the women know that the spirit inside this doll was actually a demon posing as a little girl to gain their sympathy so that it could jump into a human host. Way out of their spiritual league, the women agreed to give Annabelle to the Warrens for safekeeping in their occult museum. So the power couple buckled the doll in their car and drove slowly down the back roads, afraid that Annabelle's powers might cause them to crash. They would later write that their brakes failed several times and that they almost met their deaths. But luckily, Ed had his trusty emergency holy water, and Jesus took the wheel, delivering them from evil and then delivering them safely to their home. 
they said that that first night, the doll began appearing in different rooms of the house as if materializing from thin air, and even began levitating before their eyes. Seeing how serious this demon was, they constructed a glass prison not unlike a mini Hannibal Lecter's, writing Catholic prayers on the outside to seal in the evil. Ed continued to do his yearly prayer ceremony to keep Annabelle docile, and despite her apparent danger, she became the lucrative museum's prize pig. Um, I found out that some weird things happened in the cast and crew, including something happened to your laptop? Is that true? In my thigh. Same thing that happened to the laptop happened in my thigh. Wow. Oh, no, I have it. <laughs> yeah, well, there, there's <laughs> these claw marks. The wow. day we finished kind of appeared on my end. No one caught it. 45 years after Annabelle fell into their care, the 2013 movie The Conjuring came out, based on the Warrens' life, and it grossed $319 million. The execs decided that breakout cinematic star Annabelle was ready to carry the second installment all on her own. In the script, two crazed killers break into a couple's home and stab a pregnant woman in her abdomen. The stabber then locks herself in their daughter's room and slits her own throat while holding the Annabelle doll, her evil spirit entering the porcelain. It's uncovered later, of course, that the murderers were part of, you guessed it, a satanic cult whose dark forces could only be combated by the Warrens' holy power. Annabelle screenwriter Gary Dauberman, who identifies as Christian, stated in interviews that he made this film to appeal to a faith-based audience in addition to the typical horror fans. In this story that definitely really happened about his time working on 2019's Annabelle Comes Home, he said, quote, I had this voodoo doll made that I wanted to feature in the movie, and our prop guy built it so beautifully. It was featured in a shot, and he suddenly couldn't find it. He came up to me and said that it was on the next stage over, which we weren't using for anything. But the voodoo doll was burnt. Someone or something had burned it. It was singed. So I didn't end up using that in the movie because I didn't want to invite any sort of evil onto the set that day. Things like that always seem to end up happening on these movies. But luckily, beginning with the first Annabelle movie, they had a priest on retainer who would bless the set every morning before they began filming. You know, just in case. With an expanding universe this good, there was bound to be both fan fiction and unsanctioned merch. More after this. And now, back to the show. Films like Annabelle not only affected popular culture, but actually opened up an entire shadow economy on eBay and Etsy, with entire small businesses created by spiritual mediums turned online auctioneers. You can find thousands of these allegedly haunted dolls, going for anywhere from $8 to $18,000. 
these sellers also offer up each toy's sensational backstory, which is arguably even more important than the uncanny freakiness of the doll they're offering. Let's look at my personal favorite example. $3,500. Dangerous, rare, haunted doll. Killed paranormal investigator. Do not treat as toy. According to a group of paranormal investigators, this doll is possessed by the spirit of a child murderer who kept kids in his basement. This guy was into black magic and often took baths in the blood of his victims, amongst other horrible acts. Many people in the community suspected this guy of kidnapping kids, but the police never did anything about it. Finally, some people in the community took justice into their own hands and killed him. It was then that investigators found all the bodies buried in his basement. No one was ever charged with his murder. The doll actually belongs to one of the kids he killed, and one of the investigators gave it back to the child's parents. It killed the family cat and used its blood to draw a pentagram on the floor. The father was awakened out of his sleep by the muffled sound of the wife being smothered by the doll. He took the doll out to a rural area and threw it out of the car, but when he got back home, the doll was sitting in his chair in the living room. Desperate, they called a team of paranormal investigators. The team quickly determined the doll was possessed, and one of them offered to take the doll, and the parents agreed. Two days later, the paranormal investigator who had the doll was found stabbed to death in his home. He died with a frozen look of fear on his face. It was as if he was staring right at the doll when he died. If you make an offer on this item, please be prepared to pay within 48 hours. Now, you may not know this, but eBay has a strict policy when it comes to items like these. For some unknown reason, back in the year 2000, eBay had to put out this statement. eBay does not allow the auctioning of human souls for the following reasons. If the soul does not exist, eBay could not allow the auctioning of the soul because there would be nothing to sell. However, if the soul does exist, then, in accordance with eBay's policy on human parts and remains, we would not allow the auctioning of human souls. So now, haunted doll enthusiasts have to be careful with their language and explicitly state that they are for entertainment purposes only. But it's pretty clear from the rest of the description that they're only saying what they have to to get these dolls on the market. For those unwilling to play by the rules of the spiritually fascist eBay, Etsy has no such policy about human souls. Some of these sellers, the ones I'd consider more authentic, don't use terms like selling, instead calling what they do adoption, treating the toys like orphans in need of the right home, one that will bring something positive to both parties. They feel a sense of responsibility to both the dolls and the people adopting them, so they use psychics, they record EVPs, and run other paranormal tests, hoping to get a grasp on what kind of spirit they're dealing with so they can match them with the right human individual. While a lot of people who adopt haunted dolls do so for the fun, spooky novelty of it, others are looking for something deeper, 
a kind of spiritual companionship. Some write to these adoption agencies, hoping to become a parent to a spirit in need, something they missed out on in their lifetime or something they miss from before their own children left home. Some are seeking a friendship, a real connection with a separate soul that they can actually hold in their arms. Abracadabra, I sit on his knee. Presto, change and now he is me. Focus, focus, we take her to bed. Magic is free. We are dead. The word ventriloquist comes from Latin, translating to belly speaker. And in ancient Greece and Rome, those who could speak without moving their lips were sometimes believed to be oracles. But back then, they did not speak through dummies. Instead, voices emanated from them as if by magic. It was believed that the spirits of the dead inhabited the bodies of these ventriloquists and that they could interpret their otherworldly communications and prophecies. But when a brand new religion called Christianity began to spread across the Roman Empire, they saw it necessary to stamp out as much paganism as possible, and adherents began accusing belly speakers of being the offspring of hell itself. These Christians did not believe that the voices were spirits of the dead, but instead believed that ventriloquists were possessed by demons who, quote, lurked in their entrails from whence they gave their utterances. Many centuries later, in the 1930s, the British and American vaudeville scene made stars of these belly speakers who now controlled wooden puppets called dummies, able to manipulate their mouths to move along with the words, creating the magical illusion that the doll was speaking by itself. They created entire personalities for these dummies, usually somewhat abusive ones, a wise-cracking wooden guy making fun of the pitiable human upon whose lap he sits. Their far more dominant stage presence meant that audiences made stars of the dummies themselves more often than they did the ventriloquist controlling them. You know that the first ventriloquist doll that comes to mind for me is Slappy from the Goosebumps Night of the Living Dummy series, who also returned as the primary villain in the 2015 movie. Author R.L. Stein stated that the inspiration for Slappy came from a mass-produced version of the most famous ventriloquist dummy in American history that once lurked in the corners of his own childhood bedroom. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Well, Charlie, tonight we're playing the palace. Yeah, yeah, that's right, yeah, yeah. I hope you won't embarrass me like you did in Las Vegas. What about Las Vegas? I thought I gave a very moving performance. Yes, it was moving, all right. Especially your lips. Oh, no. <laughs> what about my lips? 
Well, you had your mouth open so much, two fellas use it for a slot machine. <laughs> they take the lemon. All right. Aren't you ashamed of yourself, Charlie? Look at this nice audience and you talk that way. Look at their faces. Uh, yeah. Yeah, she, she. <laughs> Sort of makes you want to give up show business, doesn't it? <laughs> Well, how could you say things like that? I don't know. Well, that's gratitude for you. You pick up a nobody on the street. Yeah. And you make him a big star. What do you get in return? Uh, nothing. Yeah. You never even thank me. Oh, no. <laughs> Vaudevillian performer Edgar Bergen and his dummy, Charlie McCarthy, were an American sensation from the 1930s all the way into the 1970s. Charlie had been Edgar's dummy since high school, modeled after a newsboy he once saw, the artist giving him coarse red hair, brown lifeless eyes, thin eyebrows, and bright red lips that parted in a strange smile. He was first dressed as a kind of street urchin, but as their success grew in the vaudeville scene, Edgar knew he needed to class Charlie up so that he could appropriately hobnob with the American elite, and he converted the doll into a fancy man, wearing a top hat, tails, and even a monocle. For whatever reason, America loved Charlie McCarthy, and the puppet would reach an unprecedented level of success for a dummy. He interviewed movie stars, presidents, and royalty. He starred in a series of big Hollywood movies, and his ventriloquist even won a special wooden Oscar for his comedic creation. Audiences couldn't get enough of his entertaining, sometimes assholish behavior, laughing as he made crude jokes at the expense of his puppeteer and pretty much any famous man in his midst. He one time fat-shamed Orson Welles. Another time, the puppet appeared in blackface. Charlie was also known to flirt confidently with every starlet he encountered. And let's just say, he wasn't always a gentleman. But by then, Charlie could afford to be an asshole, living as he did in absolute luxury, their act making them both handsomely rich. The dummy had his own bedroom, his own bathroom, a full-sized bed, and a walk-in closet full of custom outfits made of imported fabrics. Edgar Bergen once told McLean's magazine in 1948 that the dummy also had his own telephone and that he often chatted on it for long periods of time. It was really hard for people who spent time with him to fully comprehend that Charlie wasn't somehow alive. Longtime co-star Don Amici was once quoted as saying, I'll never get over the feeling that he is a definite, living personality. Eleanor Roosevelt said that when she met Charlie, she instinctively put out her hand to shake his. But it wasn't just other people. Edgar himself also spoke about Charlie in very strange ways, as if he didn't know anymore where he ended and the dummy began. Quote, we get talking back and forth, and suddenly, Charlie pulls a wisecrack that I can't answer. Usually it's something that 
isn't in the prepared script and leaves me stymied. It makes me feel an awful fool sometimes. I'm the stooge, the straight man for his jokes. And sometimes I give him a joke that he turns at me in a very cruel manner. After announcing his retirement from a career spanning more than 50 years, Edgar also told audiences that his dummy would be donated to the National Museum of American History in Washington, D.C. But right before their final slate of shows was finished, Edgar Bergen died suddenly of kidney failure before he could finally be separated from Charlie. Though he left his daughter, Emmy Award-winning actor Candace Bergen, nothing in his will, he did leave 10 grand to the dummy, equivalent to about $45,000 today. The document reads, quote, I make this provision for sentimental reasons, which to me are vital due to the association with Charlie McCarthy, who has been my constant companion and who has taken on the character of a real person and from whom I have never been separated, even for a day. Candace has since written a memoir and spoken on television about her relationship to both Edgar and Charlie, where she states that not only did her father have a far closer relationship to this puppet, but she herself was actually convinced that Charlie was her living brother for the first few years of her life. But by adulthood, she realized that he was actually her father's alter ego, one that he, nonetheless, seemed to believe was a separate entity. Edgar Bergen also said this of Charlie McCarthy in that McLean's interview from 1948. In every way, he is as opposite to me as he can be. And for that, I envy him. It has always been a source of amazement to me that he can be invited to the White House, flirt with the prettiest women in Hollywood, and be received by the royalty of Europe. When I appear any place without him, I'm a dismal failure. And in fact, during the early days of his success, Edgar wasn't invited to parties unless he showed up with Charlie. Orson Welles once referred to the Charlie-less Edgar as, quote, an ice-cold fellow. Perhaps it is difficult to understand a man's lifelong relationship to his own subconscious projected into a wooden puppet. But I think we can understand the need that the overly confident Charlie McCarthy fulfilled for the socially challenged Edgar Bergen. And when it comes to Annabelle or Robert or their voodoo doll colleagues, it's easy to understand the convenience of a curse. Something simple that can explain all the bad things happening in our lives. Dolls have always been a major part of religious rites, and the modern era is no different. Seeing as we do, 
our human selves in a symbol we can hold. If we have some great godlike archetype from which to ask forgiveness, like Robert the doll, it feels like maybe we can set things right again and be forgiven into a better life. And if you believe that there's a dire supernatural battle happening for your soul in an unseen dimension, like the Warrens, it's easy to understand how an evil enchanted plaything might be a great place to house your greatest mortal fears. Or, in the case of human Robert, a devilish thing to blame for all your destructive sins. If we shake off the fun of suspended disbelief and assume that these toys do not in fact house a separate spiritual entity, then we have to admit that our haunted dolls instead become imbued by the spirit we expect, a projection of what we want, what we fear, what we need, and what we believe needs us. Where the first psychic to read the aura of Annabelle saw a sweet little girl in need of nurturing, the Warrens saw a frothing demon that only the power of their cinematic piety could vanquish. Where many Americans and the U.S. government saw satanic voodoo revenge poppets, voodoo practitioners saw a vessel where their loved ones could rest. To Eric in the Twilight Zone, Talkie Tina was a murderous villain, but to an audience familiar with his emotional abuse, Talkie Tina was a feminist icon. Where some buyers saw a novelty Halloween gag, adopters saw a soul in need of a home. Where Thomas Edison saw little monsters, well, America saw little monsters as well. The suburb of San Clemente saw a sinister serial killer stalking their precious daughters. Where that kindly lady from church saw a bevy of gifts that she herself would have loved to have. Where some see a curse, others see a companion. I would never claim to know what is real about the paranormal and what's not. But if there is no such thing as a haunted doll, then we ourselves, some part of us, must be the animating force. We are the ones possessing them, making them move and talk and sometimes even live. Shocked to our very human core when they suddenly take on a life of their own. This was American Hysteria. If you'd like to get access to early ad-free episodes, as well as bonus content, you can head to patreon.com slash American Hysteria. 
where you'll be introduced to our show, Hysteria Home Companion, where producer Miranda and I discuss all the hottest gossip from the cutting room floor of each topic. Your support is what makes this show possible. If you're feeling generous, you could also leave us a review on the app of your choosing. It really helps us out. American Hysteria is written, produced, and hosted by me, Chelsea Weber-Smith. Sound designed by ClearCommo Studios, co-researched and co-edited by Riley Smith, and co-produced and edited by Miranda Zickler. Thanks, as always, for listening. And Robert, I'm so sorry for talking about you. I'm so sorry if I disrespected you. I've heard you hate in sincerity, so let me be perfectly clear that I'm genuinely afraid of your curse, and I apologize for anything I might have done to offend you. The rest of you out there, I hope you have a very haunted Halloween.